As we bow our heads, I want you just to think um, a moment ago, Jesse said, and rightly, we, we understand this, that this is the truth, that, that the cross is the, is the turning point of all of history. There is history before the cross, and there is history after the cross, and, and the cross and the empty tomb that followed changed everything. You know, the same goes for us, the very same thing, because that is so, the very same thing goes for us who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is you before the cross, and there is you after the cross. And scripture tells us that because of what Jesus did, when we place our faith in him and what he did there, that we become new creatures, that the old passes away and the new comes. And I love the way that that Paul puts it in in Titus chapter 3 when he reminds us that we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, we thank you this morning. I thank you this morning. Lord, that in my own life there is a a before and there is an after. There is a who I was before Christ and there is now who I am in Christ. And Father, that is true for each and every one of us today. Father, whatever the before, the before Christ entailed, Father, wherever we had gone astray, whatever we had done, however far we had run, was not too far for you to come and reach us and bring us to yourself and change our lives. And Father, I thank you that among us here this morning, there are so many who now have an after as well, an after, a story of who we've become, who we became because of the cross and who we now are in Christ and who we are promised to be one day when we are sent and brought into your presence face to face. Father, we thank you for the radical transformation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that old things, whether we feel that way or not, Father, whether Satan tries to convince us otherwise, but when we trust Christ, old things do pass away and all things become new. And Father, we thank you that whether we are joyful or hurting today, whether we are thriving or struggling, that we stand forgiven before you. We are new creations and we, by your grace, can walk with you through this day. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And now we thank you for your word. Father, as we go to the scriptures now, I pray that our hearts have been warmed and stirred through worship, through testimony, through prayer. And Father, that we are now ready, and to whatever extent we are not, you would make us ready in this moment. Father, as always, not to hear things that I have to say, not to get sermon points and a big idea. Father, but through the the simplicity, even the foolishness of preaching, We might see, hear, and encounter Jesus all over again. Father, we thank you for the promise that where two or three gather in your name, you are here with us. What a promise. What a privilege. And Father, we invite now, as we always do at this time, for you, through your Holy Spirit, to work powerfully, silently but powerfully among us, guiding us in truth, guarding us from error, delivering us from distraction, and helping us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. 
May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we walk out these doors in a little while into whatever the day and the week ahead may hold, Father, I pray that we will do so having had our hope restored, our joy renewed. Father, ready because your word says so, that if we have waited on you, ready to mount up with wings like eagles, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not become faint. Father, these things are only possible because of Jesus. And so it is him that we love, it is him that we praise, it is him that we seek, and it is in his name that we pray, as all God's people said together, amen, amen, you may be seated. And as always, as you're taking your seats, boys and girls, you can leave your seats and head out for Children's Church. Whether you are a regular attender here, if you're our guest today, kiddos from uh, five years old up through second grade, this is their time to go and get into God's Word, as I will invite you to once again turn with me, those of you staying behind, turn with me once again in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, where we are moving quickly, actually for, for my taste, too quickly. I can't believe we're already in the final chapter of the book, and just between now and, and one more Sunday, we'll be done with it and, and on to Esther, but... But there's still, this book has been building, this story has been growing if you've been with us or you've been able to keep up on your own if you've been absent. But, but, but the whole story has really been building to partially what we looked at last Sunday, this nighttime conversation that took place between Boaz, the wealthy farmer, and Ruth, the, the gleaner, the impoverished young woman coming to his fields, merely hoping to survive, there was a conversation that took place where they expressed their desire to marry one another. We're not going to retell the whole story again. If you missed it, you can probably read it in the time that everybody else is finding their place in the Bible, so go ahead and look if that's what you want to do. But we are moving into chapter 4 where the culmination of that conversation takes place and another major pivot point in the story of Ruth. This is, in a sense, what we're going to look at this morning, the moment that everybody has been waiting for. And I'm going to begin reading this morning in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to go down to verse 13. We'll leave the remainder for the next time we're together in the story of Ruth. But, but if you'll follow along now in your Bible with me, Ruth 4, 1 through 13, this is what the Word of God says. It says, now Boaz went up to the gate. This would be the gate of the city of Bethlehem where he lived. It says, he went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, who he mentioned to Ruth the night before, was passing by. So he, Boaz, said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he, this relative, turned aside and sat down. He, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next in line after you. And he, this relative, this man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land, or buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, because it would jeopardize my own inheritance. 
Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it now. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar boarded Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. You know, every married couple has an engagement story, right? A story, whether simple or elaborate, uh, whether drawn out and dramatic or, or maybe rather ordinary, but every married couple has a story of how it was that they came to officially, formally commit themselves to being one another's husband and wife. Everybody's got an engagement story. But you know, as I've thought about it, the thing about engagement stories is that they are not necessarily predictive of the way in which the marriage that follows the engagement will go. Follow me on this. I'm sure we all know many people, or we may have friends who have very elaborate, or we've heard very elaborate engagement stories. Stories that involve dozens of hours of planning and hundreds of, of dollars of, of preparation, maybe more than that. And that marriage didn't make it to the five-year anniversary. Well, on the other hand, and these are not certainly the only two options, but the other extreme, there are many marriage relationships that began in the most pedestrian of ways, the most ordinary, straightforward of ways, and yet somehow those became relationships, marriages that last a lifetime. The nature of the engagement story is not predictive of the relationship that follows. And I say that because there's a sense in which the same goes here this morning, where in, in, in what was certainly, as we've begun to see, a blossoming case of true love, a man and a woman falling in love with one another, Boaz, follow me on this, managed to secure Ruth's hand in marriage to become engaged, betrothed to her by means of an ancient Hebrew business transaction that occurred at the city gate before the town elders and whoever other, whatever assorted spectators uh, may have also been passing by, before the city, before an audience, and it's highly probable, maybe even likely, that Ruth herself wasn't even among those who watched the transaction go down, even though it concerned her eventual engagement and marriage to Boaz. But by the end of that meeting, by the end of that business meeting, Boaz got what he'd come for. The Bethlehem farmer took for himself a wife. But because in doing so, he acted in the place or in the role of a kinsman redeemer, 
And the kinsman redeemer, you'll remember the way we've been defining it. There are certainly more uh, exhaustive definitions, but we have been defining a kinsman redeemer as a blood relative, a near blood male relative whose job it was to rescue loved ones in need. Particularly, we're talking about instances where a family patriarch, a husband, a father, dies, leaving his wife a widow and his family at risk, a kinsman redeemer's job is to step in and rescue those loved ones, those family members in need, because that is the capacity in which Boaz was operating here. I want to suggest to you, in fact, I want to show you this morning that his conduct in these verses has so much to offer us today. As followers of Jesus Christ. So much, in fact, that when I initially wrote my sermon outline, just to let you get a little peek behind the curtain, my original outline for this sermon had 11 points. 11 things, 11 ways in which Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And after I wrote that, literally wrote that down, I thought, no, 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 that's way too much for a 35 or 40 minute sermon. So I did you a favor. I narrowed it down to 10. I want to show you 10 ways, we're going to move quickly, 10 ways in which, in the role of a kinsman redeemer, Boaz points us to the person of Jesus Christ. 10 ways that Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, points us to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're ready, we're going to move quickly. The first one is this. And, and really, maybe the foundational principle is this. Number one, in his role of kinsman redeemer, Boaz, first of all, was a man motivated by love. He was a man motivated by love. Now, that's partly seen in, in the fact that, that he moved so swiftly to secure Ruth's hand in marriage. Remember, they have this midnight conversation, and he says, I'm going to take care of everything tomorrow morning. And what do we see here? At the beginning of chapter 4, first thing in the morning, he moved to get the matter settled. That would be indicative of the fact that he is a man motivated by love. But I would suggest that he is a man motivated by love, that that can be seen much more richly in the fact, get this, that he did not have to marry Ruth. The law didn't say he had to marry her. The law of a kinsman redeemer, going back to the books of Moses, said that what a kinsman redeemer, this near-blood male relative, had to do, he was charged with A, ensuring family land stayed in the family, and B, ensuring, if necessary, provide a male heir through the dead man's wife, through the family patriarch's widow, so that the family name could be continued, and then according to the law, his job was done. Keep the land in the family, keep the name alive. But based on what we saw last week, Boaz wanted more. Boaz wanted to marry this young woman. His heart had been moved in that kind of way. And so the reason I think that's so important to point out is I want you to recognize that as we go through these other things, all of them are to be recognized and seen as actions and activities of a man in love. A man who is motivated by love, who secondly, I want you to see, was, and we've talked about this some already, but he was qualified for the job. He was motivated by love, number one, and qualified for the job, number two. That's a fact that's been repeatedly noted. We've seen it in chapter two, when we were first introduced to Boaz. We've seen it again in chapter three. We learned what I mean by that. It's along the way, up to this point, we've learned Boaz was a, a blood relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. That made him qualified to be kinsman redeemer. 
And while the author of Ruth doesn't tell us the exact nature of the relationship, was he a first cousin? Was he, a, was he an uncle, a nephew? Was some, we don't know the nature of the relationship. What happens here, and it was hinted at last Sunday in chapter 3, is a crisis arises. Because while he was qualified for the job as a near-blood male relative, the crisis emerges when we realize or when we discover that there is a nearer male relative of Elimelech who is actually first in line for the role of kinsman redeemer. Look again at verse 1. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, the close relative, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Turned aside and sat down. And then verse 3 acknowledges. It says that when he spoke, he spoke to, the my Bible puts it, the closest relative. First in line to rescue Naomi and Ruth and all that was at stake in this situation. In other words, here's what I want you to see. Though qualified for the job, Boaz faced a dilemma that, that maybe once upon a time you faced as well. There's another guy in the picture. There's someone else competing, perhaps, for the affections of the one that your heart has been set upon. And, and who's going who's gonna to win, right? Who's going who's gonna to get the girl here? So this dilemma, this crisis has been created, this obstacle is in the way, competing perhaps for her affections. And that is why the third thing I want you to see about Boaz is that he was a man with a plan. Knowing the obstacle, knowing the situation, he came to this encounter with a plan. And I really think that in his plan, we get a hint, we get a clue as why Boaz was, was so successful as a businessman, as a farmer, in, in the rest of his life. Because after arriving early at the spot where all village business was conducted, everybody met at the city gate in Bethlehem, probably not a big town, maybe a few thousand people, but this is the place where business was done and, and proactively gathering together all the interested parties. He finds the nearer relative. He finds 10 town elders. He, he gathers other people uh, to serve as witnesses to this transaction in a public way. He then, after getting everybody together, of course, he's very assertive if you look at those first few verses, he then laid out the case in an orderly fashion. Now watch the art of the deal here. Here's what happens. He said to the closest relative, verse 3, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it. I'm next in line after you. And he said, I will, I will redeem it. Now, everything Boaz said there was true accurate information. But he did omit one important detail, didn't he? He got this nearer relative on the hook, right? He, he got his attention. He got him to buy into the idea of being kinsman redeemer, but he left something out. Verse 5, look at your Bible. Then Boaz said, since you're so interested, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on, its in, on his inheritance. That's called having an ace up your sleeve. That's called having a, a, a plan to get from point A successfully to point B. And while strategic, it wasn't dishonest. It was strategic. It was well thought out. 
And, and, and the reason I know it wasn't dishonest or deceitful in any way is because what the rest of their conversation goes on to show is having arrived on the scene in Bethlehem with a plan, what the rest of the conversation, the transaction shows is that from start to finish, fourth, Boaz, as kinsman redeemer, was a man who satisfied all the demands of the law. He satisfied everything that the Old Testament law required. As I was reading through this for you a few minutes ago, and, and, and many of you I know have read this story yourselves before, but, but I have to think that what inquiring minds want to know in this story, among other things, is what's the deal with the shoe, right? With, with, with an exchange of a sandal in verses 7 through 10. And I want you to know, as you might imagine, down through the years of church history, people have floated a lot of very curious and creative ideas about what's going on with one man in this transaction handing his, his sandal, his shoe, to another. Well, the, the most, as, as is usually the case with the Bible, the most plain, the most ordinary explanation is probably the best one. And the, the very plain explanation is this. This was a real estate deal. This is a, a land transaction. And, and so what the, the nearer relative is symbolizing, when he takes off his own shoe, his sandal, and he hands it to Boaz, he is saying, you now have the right to walk this land. This land which, which would have belonged to me, which would have been my right to walk upon, I am visibly, openly, publicly affirming that the land in question is now yours to inhabit. And, and what verses 7 and 8 tell us is that was a, a practice, a custom lost in Israel, even by the time the, the story of Ruth was written, look at verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal, gave it to another. This is the way deals were done in Israel. So, verse 8, the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He removed and presumably gave him his sandal. Then, let's keep going, verse 9. When Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and to his sons Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that his name will not be cut off from his brothers or the court of his birthplace. You are all witnesses today. What Boaz meant in those words was this. Everything the law of redemption required has been accomplished. Everything required to redeem is done. We could paraphrase Boaz here by saying, ladies and gentlemen, it is finished. The law has been satisfied. The standard has been met. He was motivated by love. He was qualified for the job. He came with a plan. He satisfied the law. Fifth, in satisfying the law, we dare not miss the fact that as a kinsman redeemer, he also paid a price. He willingly, even gladly, paid a price. You know, one of the other curiosities about this story is, is we're never told here or anywhere else in the scriptures where this piece of land that Naomi had to sell came from. Why have we not heard about this before? And, and what's the reason, what's the cause of her having to sell it in the first place? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, but that's because the relevant point is simply this. Whoever wanted it had to pay for it. You want to get it, you want to redeem it, there is a redemption price to be paid. And, and I think that the nearer relative, that his initial enthusiasm, his like, all right, I'll buy it, I'll redeem it, I'll take it, 
is because he knew what people still know today, that, that, that land, that real estate is a good investment, right? I'll acquire this land, I'll expand my holdings, it'll appreciate in value, I'll, I'll have more for myself and, and for future generations. He was probably a, a decent businessman too. So he says at the end of verse 4, all right, I'll redeem it. But when Boaz played that ace in verses 5 and 6, when he informed the nearer kinsmen that, that taking Ruth and, and raising up an heir for Elimelech and, and Malon was part of the deal, well, that, that changed everything. The closest relative said in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself. Why? Because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, remember, the whole point of the kinsman-redeemer scenario is to keep the land and the family. And to keep the family name alive. And what this man saw is if I do that, if I am willing to, to enter into this arrangement, to be the kinsman redeemer. Well, I'm going to pay a price for a piece of land that isn't ever going to be mine. Because the day I die, it's going to go to that baby, that, that, that son that, that he and Ruth would have together. He goes, that's a net loss investment. I don't want in on that. i got to buy land and then I have to give it away. And so we think probably he was just motivated here by, by financial concerns, by financial constraints. A lot of people think that's why his name is never mentioned, because to refuse to be a kinsman redeemer was a shameful thing, to not step up to the plate and handle the responsibility. So he saw, this land I buy, I pay for, it won't be mine. In other words, being a kinsman redeemer was costly. It didn't come free. Whoever did it paid a literal price. But here, Boaz, he's different. For the, listen, the joy set before him, he was willing to pay the price. Because he knew he could see the other side. And as a man who, who satisfied the law's demands, as, as a man willing to pay the price, that takes us to then the sixth thing that was true of him as a kinsman redeemer is we need to recognize, as I'm sure you're gathering already, that he was acting on another person's behalf. He performed the role of a kinsman redeemer, acting on the behalf of others. Again, at the, point of, at the risk of belaboring the point, the kinsman redeemer's job, rescue someone who can't rescue themselves. Save someone unable to save her or him Self. It's a rescue operation. And, and while in this instance, of course, what we're seeing here, Boaz got himself a godly wife in the deal. I mean, there was a great benefit to being the kinsman redeemer. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the selflessness he exercised in the big picture must be noted. Because think about what he really did in verses 9 and 10. Look at him again in your Bible. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today. That I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, again, her late husband, all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, their sons. Malon was the husband of Ruth. Moreover, verse 10, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, in order to, so that I might raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brother's. For the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. In other words, 
As kinsman redeemer, Boaz acted, A, on behalf of men who were no longer there, and B, for the sake of generations he'd never lived to see. He was acting on behalf of men who were already gone. And he was making an investment. Yes, he's getting a godly wife. He'll get a family in the deal. But primarily what he's doing is for generations who'd, who'd show up after he was long gone from the picture. He was acting on behalf of another. It was a selfless sacrifice. Through which he also seventh. All wrapped up in this same idea as well. As a kinsman redeemer, he then rescued something that was about to be lost. He was a rescuer of something about to be lost. You know, somewhere down inside, each and every one of us longs to know that our life matters, right? And we express it in different ways. Maybe we feel it to different depths or extremes. But there is a part, I think, of every human life that wants to know that, that I matter, that I make a difference, that that I'll leave a mark, that I'll, I'll have an impact, I'll do something, that people will remember me at least for a little while after I die for, for something about my life. We want to know that once we're gone, we won't be forgotten. But, but if you take that feeling, if you recognize that, that longing we all have, you can identify with it yourself. What I want you to know is that in ancient Israel, to lose your land, and for your family name to die out took that dilemma several steps further. It was an amplified longing. It was a terrible thing for a family to not be redeemed in this situation. Because in those days, again, land was money. Land was security. Land was legacy. It was how you left your mark for the sake of future generations. And, and so losing it meant exactly what Boaz said it did here that the name of the deceased would be cut off from his brothers and the court of his birthplace. In other words, it wouldn't be long until nobody remembered they were even here. Their name would be cut off. And again, to be, to be cut off was a shameful thing, was a disgraceful thing. And so Boaz, as a man with the means to prevent it, as a man with the means to, to do something about what was going to be forever lost, stepped in and did what only he, in this instance, could do. He rescued something about to be lost, which in turn, the eighth of the ten things we're going to see this morning. His actions as kinsman redeemer inspired praise throughout the community. What he did on behalf of others, this selfless, sacrificial rescue plan inspired praise throughout the community. You know what it's like around here, those of you who whom Maranatha is home, what it's like here on Baptism Sunday. It's just different, right? You know what I'm talking about. There is a different feeling in the air on Baptism Sunday. There is a, a celebratory mood. It's like, yeah, we're going to sing, and yeah, Aaron's going to talk, but what we really want, to, what we really came for is the baptisms, right? Because those are fantastic stories. It's a high point of the year for all of us whenever we do that. And, and, and there's just something, I don't know how to put my finger on it, but it's different. And, and the reason I mention it is because I want you to picture or to imagine that same kind of celebratory mood, that same sense of joyful praise that occurred here at the Bethlehem city gate at the moment Boaz sealed the deal. Verse 11, all the people who were in the court and all the elders said, we are witnesses and because of what we have witnessed here, Boaz, because of what you have done, 
May the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. Between Rachel and Leah, they, they, gave, they gave Jacob eight of the, the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you through this young woman. Now, there's a lot of history there we don't have time to get into, but the message was this. Boaz, may this only be the beginning of great things for you. We celebrate what you've done here. God has been good to you already, but we pray. It's really, it's a prayer. We are praying that God will do more great things for you, more great things to you. There's a sense in which lowercase g, Boaz, glory to you. We give glory to you for what you have done. And, and I think that must have been a welcome bright spot in the days of the judges, right? When everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no leadership. There's so much brokenness. This was a good day in Israel. And in that ninth, what I want you to see is because of what he did, because of his willingness to pay this price, he established, Boaz did for himself, a lasting name. He established for himself a lasting name. Now, I don't want to be redundant, but look again at the end of verse 11. After they say, may the Lord make, basically they pray for, for Ruth. May Ruth, coming into your home, you know, may she be, have many children. Build the house of Israel in the, in the legacy and the heritage of great women like Rachel and Leah. But then they say this, and may you, here's their prayer request for Boaz. May you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Now, that's a nice sentiment, right? That's a, a nice thing for them to say or to pray on his behalf. But, but I want you to think about that. What are they saying? They're saying, Boaz, we... We want, not only did you just rescue what you did, rescue the family of Elimelech and their name so that they'll be remembered forever. Well, we want everybody to remember you too. What you did here today is worth telling in years to come. In fact, we, our prayer is that the whole village of Bethlehem, all two, three, four thousand, you know, would know of the fame of Boaz, right? From one end of the city wall to the other. May your fame and your wealth in this city increase. Ephrathah was sort of like the, the, the district around that, maybe even out beyond Ephrathah. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but 3,000 years have passed, and we're on the other side of the globe, and we're still talking about this guy. I would say that he established a lasting name. That his act of redemption far outlived, far exceeded any expectation anyone could have had way back then. I'm saying their prayer was answered. He achieved for himself a lasting name. He did something that still impacts the world today. And then tenth and finally, what we need to see is when you put all this together, but then you sort of distill it all down, the bottom line, the essence of of this whole scenario is the last thing Boaz did as kinsman redeemer was ultimately he transformed another person's life. He transformed another's life, and that, of course, being Ruth. Because verse 13 tells us he, he took her as his wife. God enables her to conceive. She gives birth to a son. And in that instant, or at least in this sequence of events, what we should realize is what happened to Ruth is she was elevated from peasant to princess, from poverty to prosperity, from anonymity to enduring fame. She was literally given a new name, a new home, 
and a lasting, enduring inheritance. And I would have you know, by the way, did you notice that nowhere in this chapter did Ruth even speak? In fact, she never speaks in the story again. She isn't even probably present in the story. What does that mean? It means the act of redemption was all accomplished by Boaz. All she had to do was open up her heart and say yes. It was an act of grace from start to finish. Her life was transformed by Boaz's actions. He took care of everything. And with all of that in mind, let me ask you a question that you already know the answer to. Does this sound like somebody you know? Does it sound like somebody you know? Are you aware of someone who, motivated by love and qualified for the job, came with a plan, satisfied the law, gladly paid a price, acted on others' behalf, rescued something about to be lost, which inspired praise in the community, established a lasting name, and serves to not only once, but to continue to transform others' lives? I don't know about you, sounds a lot like Jesus to me. This is what he's done for us. He is our kinsman redeemer. And everything Boaz did for Ruth, Jesus Christ has done for us. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, and that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Boaz didn't know all that 3,000 years ago, but God did. And now you do. And so do I. We see what God was up to here. And and this morning, there's, listen, there's all kinds of room for practical application. Any one of these points we could, we could dig into and talk about how we can apply it to our lives today as we go home and, and go back out into the world. There's all kinds of ways we could try to apply this message. But as I thought about it and I prayed about it, it occurred to me, and I'm going to finish with this, that, that maybe rather than try to give you three ways to live a better life in light of the ten things that Boaz just showed us, maybe the best thing we can do today is is simply do with this story what it was given to us for in the first place, to cause us to look to and to linger on and rejoice in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for me and for you. Eugene Peterson writes, he says, the story of Ruth and Boaz wasn't simply a small love story into which they accidentally fell. I would say it's more than just the story of a farmer who took a wife. He says, rather... It was a sprawling love story of epic proportions. For through the union of Ruth and Boaz came David, and through David came the Savior of the world. And thanks to him, you're sitting here today. For the big idea is that there's no greater joy than knowing you've been redeemed. There is no greater joy in this life than to know that you have been redeemed. Father, your word is amazing. It fits together from one end to the other. All of it points us to Jesus. Father, I don't know if that day of, on Resurrection Sunday as Jesus walked the road to Emmaus with two disciples and he explained to them the things in Scripture concerning himself. I don't know if he talked about Boaz, but I have a hunch that he might have. 
And as those pieces began to fall in place in their minds, just as perhaps for some of us this morning, more pieces have fallen to place in ours. Lord, the, the result was, was recognition, the result was joy, the result was transformation. Father, every one of us sitting in this sanctuary this morning or watching from home either has been redeemed by Jesus Christ or we need to be. Father, for those of us who have been redeemed, help us to live in the joy of that today and in the days to come. Father, to realize even when life is hard, the end is sure. We know where this is going. And we know we will be with you. And Father, I pray for any man, any woman, any young person listening today who has not yet been redeemed to in this moment, in their heart, before you say, Lord, that's what I want to save me. Father, I pray as always this morning as we close that you would take the things of truth that we have looked at and explored here this morning and seal them in our hearts, move them appropriately to our hands and feet so that all the rest of the stuff slip away that we might truly leave rejoicing in the gift of redemption today through Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.